Well, good morning. Uh, it's a privilege to be with you, and uh, greetings from uh, Jefferson Park Baptist Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, turn with me, if you would, please, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at chapters 4 and 5 uh, this morning. And the, the key question that I want us to consider this morning is this. Is following Jesus worth it? Is following Jesus worth it? Uh, that is uh, really, I think, the, the crucial question that um, is, is the Christians to whom this book is written are asking. Uh, we sometimes think of Revelation and, uh, you know, we're, we're quick to think about all the, you know, different interpretations and, and those that pull out the charts to try to figure out what's going to happen when and um, and, and it almost becomes this cryptic code meant to satisfy intellectual curiosity. Um, but if we stop for a minute and consider the, the context uh, into which this book was initially written, uh, that is definitely not how uh, the early Christians would have taken this book because their lives were literally on the line. You know, the, the, the fundamental question they're asking is, is this worth it? You know, is following Christ really worth it? Um, the, this book was written probably in the mid-90s A.D., and at this time, Emperor Domitian uh, over the Roman Empire had made emperor worship compulsory on threat of death. So, so there were soldiers going around, and, and they might come to your house, if, especially if they'd heard you were Christians, and, and you were just supposed to take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire, and say, Caesar is Lord. If you're a pious Christian, you understand that to do so would be idolatrous. And therefore, you have no choice but to refuse. And if you were to persist in refusal to offer incense to Caesar, the punishment is death. And so that is the life. Now, there were relatively few who were actually killed, um, martyred this way, but, but this is a threat that, that every Christian has to live with. And as the culture goes in the complete opposite direction, you have to wake up and ask yourself, is following Christ worth it? Am I ready to die for Him? One, one example of this from church history, this was you know, a little over 100 years after that. So in about A.D. Uh, 203, there was a, a, a young woman named Perpetua. And she had just recently become a Christian. Uh, she was part of a group of, I think, five members of this baptismal class, and they, they lived in Carthage in North Africa, and the Roman emperor uh, Severus, uh, he viewed Christianity as, a, as undermining Roman patriotism, and he wanted to crack down, and uh, he had these new Christians seized and arrested. And so Perpetua is in, in jail, and, and she was actually a young mother. She had a, a, a little baby, um, and she's nursing this child in prison. Um, her own father, who's a pagan, comes to her multiple times. The first time he comes and, and he's just begging her. He's like, just, just say you're not a Christian. All you got to do is just throw some incense at a fire and just say, I don't believe in Christ. Just, just say it. And Perpetua you know, looks and she says, see this vase. Can it be called by anything other than what it is? And he says, no. And she says, then neither can I be called by anything other than what I am, a Christian. Then the, the, the father comes back later and he's even more insistent he, he, he says, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father. 
If I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life. He threw himself down before her and kissed her hands. Do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. Here she is facing this assault from her own father. And she simply says, it will happen in the prisoner's dock as God wills. Then later she's brought before the judge. And here in, the, in this very courtroom, the, the father bursts in and he says, perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Even the judge himself, you know, not, not wanting to have to see this young mother put to death, he says, have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of the emperor. And Perpetua simply replied, I will not. And the judge asked, are you a Christian then? Yes, I am, she replied. And at that, she, as well as these other friends, baptismal candidates, were sentenced to the arena. Where they were thrown, they were torn by wild beasts and eventually executed with the sword. And so this example, it just brings to mind for us, is, is following Jesus really worth that? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're asking this question, is following Jesus really worth letting go of sins I love? Is it really worth you know, having to face all these friends I've known who will think less of me, who will laugh and scoff? Or even for those of us who are believers, and we would say emphatically, yes, of course it's worth it. Yet how does this come about in our lives in subtle ways? You know, where, where we can grow slothful in our zeal. We can grow lazy in our fight against sin. You know, and, and it doesn't really seem worth it to um, fight that sin, to, to let go of that thing, to, to open up our mouth and speak the truth when it, it really is going to bring just conflict and people thinking less of us. You know, is, is giving up my pride, is it, is it really worth it? Um, so let's, let's be thinking about that question. How worth it is it to follow Christ? As we turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Um, now, <clears throat> These two chapters, I've, I've picked them in the book of Revelation because they really are the backdrop against which everything else in the book plays out. Uh, the book begins in, in chapters 1 through 3 uh, with John seeing this vision of the Son of Man. It's, it's Jesus himself walking in the midst of these seven lampstands, the seven churches of Asia to whom the book is written. Um, and Jesus has a personal message for each of these seven churches, and it addresses their earthly situation, and they're called to repent, they're called to persevere, and they're promised that if they overcome, they will receive life. But then, in chapter 4, John is summoned to come up here, uh, to, to come and enter through this door in heaven, and he sees God on the throne. So listen as I read Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, 
and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Amen. Now as we hear this picture of the heavenly throne room, uh, we are immediately confronted with things that to us seem strange, seem mysterious, uh, seem even fearsome. Uh, And yet there are four things in particular that I want to point out to you so that you notice in this chapter. Uh, and And the first thing is this. God is on the throne. Uh, Many of these pictures of these living creatures and these angels flying around calling out, uh, these should be familiar if if we know the Old Testament well. Uh, These images are the very same kinds of things that are said in uh, Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel had similar visions. Isaiah sees these seraphs flying around, these burning ones with six wings, right? Calling one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then Ezekiel, similarly, he sees these four living creatures around the throne of God. Um, and, And the first thing that this should tell us is that just as God was on the throne in the days of Isaiah, right? In the year that King Uzziah died when there was this political uncertainty and the kingdoms of the earth seemed to be shaken. And just as God was on the throne in the days of Ezekiel, right? After Israel had been carried off to Babylon. And here's, here's Ezekiel looking back and, you know, is this God going to leave us? Now, hundreds of years later, John is summoned and he looks and there's God on the throne. Right? Earthly kingdoms will rise and fall. Right? Human kings will rise up and then die. But God reigns all the same in heaven. He reigns as He always has, as He always will. He is the God who was and is and is to come. God is on the throne. Now a second thing to notice 
Just behold the beauty of God. So look down at verse 3. John describes the one who is on the throne. And he says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now you may ask me, well, what does it look like to have a rainbow that looks like an emerald? And I will tell you, I don't know. But I think what is going on here is John is trying to describe the indescribable. I mean, he sees this vision of God and just all of God's glory. And it's like he's just trying to pick the most beautiful, precious stones and rainbows. And he's just trying to explain it, but you just can't. And it's really just like Isaiah and Ezekiel before, right? Isaiah, you read his story, and he talks a lot about the seraphs, but he doesn't even really try to describe the one who's on the throne. And then you come to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel kind of gives it a shot, and he talks about, you know, fire and precious stones and rainbows. And at the end, he's like, you know, and this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I mean, the best you can do is just give the appearance of the likeness of the most beautiful things on earth to try to describe God. And here, John, in a very similar way, he just talks about precious stones, rainbows, emeralds. And the point is that God is beautiful. And there is nothing more wonderful than to behold the glory of God. You know, we should have hearts like David who could say in Psalm 27.4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Now third, behold the majestic holiness of this King. So we read that around the throne, in verse 4, were 24 thrones, And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So this is a king whose throne is so high and exalted, who is so majestic that around his throne are twenty-four other thrones with principalities and powers who we read later cast their crowns before him. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, These elders, they're they're probably angelic beings. Uh, There may be significance to the number 24, perhaps representing the church uh, of all ages, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Um, But in either case, the point is the majesty of God, that these kings themselves are before His throne. Then in verse 5, we read that from the throne, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So we have the seven spirits of God, which actually if you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, you'll see that there's this Trinitarian introduction and, and the Spirit is just called the seven spirits of God. This just means the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, So around the throne, there's the Holy Spirit, and then there is thunder and lightning. And this just speaks to the awesome power of God. And I I can remember just recently being in my house. I'm about to walk up the stairs, and there must have been a thunderstorm. It was like the thunderclap was right over my house, and it just goes off. It's just this 
deafening sound, and the house shakes. You know, it's this shockwave into my chest, and just this fearsome power. And that is a picture of the power of God. You think of God coming down on Mount Sinai, right? There is thunder and lightning. Uh, You think of in Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He says, God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from His hand. And there, His power was hidden. Or, Or one other place, and one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Job 26. And it it speaks of Sheol being naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. God stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in His thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it His cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at His rebuke. By His power He stilled the sea. By His understanding He shattered Rahab. By His wind the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. We hear all these things that we cannot begin to understand that are just the awesome, you know, we think the thunderous power of God. And then the author of Job says, Behold, these are but the mere edges of His ways. And how small a whisper we hear of Him. But the thunder of His power, who can understand? It's like all of the things in creation that astound us with God's power are like a whisper. And this God of infinite power, the thunder of His power, who can understand? And yet... This God who is so majestic, who is so thunderously powerful, is not a God who is chaotic or out of control. No, we look in verse 6 and it says, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And if we think for a moment, okay, to, to a Jew, what does the sea represent? It represents evil and it represents chaos. Right? That's why the wicked are like the troubled sea. There is no rest for the wicked. And yet before God's throne, the sea itself is a sea of glass like crystal. This is a God who uses His power to subdue and work all things according to the counsel of His will. Absolute sovereignty. Then, also, showing God's majesty and holiness, we have these four living creatures. So in verses 6 to 8, we read about the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, uh, possibly representing their their full knowledge, the fullness of their knowledge of God. Uh, The first living creature is like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the fourth like an eagle in flight. And, you know, these different... uh, The lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. Each one of these is the chief of its kind, right? The the lion is the chief among wild beasts, the ox among domestic animals, man over all creation, and the eagle is the chief of the skies. Uh, Perhaps they also represent royalty, strength, spirituality, and swiftness. Um, And they have six wings, right? So at least in Isaiah, we know that Uh, The seraphs had six wings. With two, they flew. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet because God, you know, they cover their faces because God dwells in unapproachable light whom no eye can see. 
and they cover their feet because even they have feet of clay. They are creatures like us. And they cry out day and night, never ceasing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it's like we look at these living creatures, and if we've ever seen something that seems holy, that seems other, that seems just awesome in power, we think it would be them, and yet they are the ones who are covering their faces and calling out, no, God is holy. God is the one who is in a category all by Himself. God alone is the I am that I am, the one who is and was and is to come. God alone is eternal. God alone is God. And so, we've seen God reigns, we've seen the beauty of God, and the majestic holiness of God, and then fourthly and finally in this chapter, I want you to notice what it is that then the living creatures and the 24 elders begin to praise God for. And so picking up in verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. So whenever the four living creatures praise God as holy, then they all, with the elders, they fall down before the throne, casting their crowns, and they praise God as creator. And they acknowledge that it was by God's will that all things existed and were created. Not only did God make everything, He made everything from nothing. He brought everything that is into existence. And because He is Creator, He is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. He's worthy of power and authority because as Creator, He is the owner of everything. And He is worthy of glory and honor because when you look at His creation, it is marvelous. It is glorious. It is exquisite in beauty. It is spectacular. As far in as you zoom, you can look at the atoms and just be amazed. And you can zoom out and look at the universe and be amazed. Creation is full of the glory of God. And after thousands of years, these angelic beings have not got tired of praising Him for it. It's not grown old to them. And it should not grow old to us. Right? We should look around and praise God every day because He is the Creator, and be in awe of what He has made. And so, I want to go back for a minute to the initial question, is following Christ worth it? Well, friends, is this our vision of God? Do we have this vision of God in all of His majesty, beauty, and holiness before us? We think like, perpetua, if our life is on the line, is it really worth it to follow Christ? When we think about, you know, is confessing this sin really worth it? Is, you know, having that hard conversation really worth it? Is 
following Jesus and giving more of myself to Him really worth it? Well, how much do we have this vision of God on the throne? On the forefront of our minds day by day. Because the more it is, then the more of of course following Christ is worth it. Just because God is God and He deserves our life. He made us. He owns us. He's worthy. And secondly, anything is worth it if it means that we can be with Him and behold His glory. And we can see Him for all eternity. If we have a vision for the wonderful glory of God, then we will, anything will be worth being with Him. And yet there's even more reason why following Christ is worth it. And so for that, turn with me to chapter 5. And I'm going to read the whole chapter and then we'll go back and and look at key things in similar fashion. So Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So there are four things that I want you to notice in this chapter. And the first one is this. God holds history in his hand. We see that, that John looks and he sees in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, this is verse one, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And of course, any great king would issue decrees and they would be issued on a scroll and then they would seal it and the king would have the wax, 
you know, put on there, and then he would stamp that with his seal to seal the scroll. And here we see God himself holding a scroll of his decree for history in his hand. And this scroll seems to contain especially God's decree for the resolution of history itself. How God will bring to pass judgment upon His enemies. How He will bring about the salvation of His people. And how He will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. A new Eden. When this world is restored. When all things are set right. When the curse is taken away. And in fact, if as you read through the rest of Revelation... Really, I think the best way to interpret it is it is the unrolling of this scroll. Uh, If you look down at chapter 6, verse 1, this is when the seals begin to be broken and opened. Um, And we see the the seven seals are, are unlocked. And it's, you know, there are these wars, these rumors of wars, there's tribulations, there's cosmic disturbances. And yet these are just all the necessary signs and judgments which according to the sovereign plan of God must take place prior to the end. It simply must happen. And and there's an interlude there that talks about the sealing of the 144,000, right? God's people are going to be sealed and preserved. But then, then it seems like the scroll itself is open and then the next thing is you have these seven trumpets beginning in chapter 8. Right? And, and the trumpets sound, and then there's these plague-like judgments uh, that come upon the earth. Uh, they come upon you know, the, the earth and the sea and the fresh waters and the sky, and then there's these you know, demonic hordes that are released to you know, afflict and torture those who don't have the seal of God on them. And we ask the question, okay, like, here we are as Christians, God, why is life hard? Why are there so many bad things? Why are you not coming sooner? And I think the answer is because the trumpets are sounding. And God in His mercy and His grace is summoning the world to wake up and repent. And it's right in that section that you know, there's the, the scroll that John eats and he's called to prophesy and there's these two witnesses that are bearing witness to the earth and calling the earth to repent. And so it's a picture of God saying the sin leads to misery. Repent. And then after that, in chapter 12, we begin to see something of the working of Satan. Right? And this dragon comes down and he chases the woman and tries to consume the child. And then he summons the beast from the sea and the false prophet from the earth. And it's like there's this anti-trinity of Satan, the dragon, and the beast, which I think stands for oppressive, wicked human government, and the false prophet, which stands for false religion, and this anti-trinity is seeking to destroy the people of God, and yet, God's wrath is poured out, and judgment comes. And then this, you get to chapter 16, and that wrath is poured out in these seven bowls. And God is bringing justice on earth. And that climaxes, of course, with the great white throne judgment. Right where the dead are cast into everlasting destruction. And then we come to chapter 21, and all of a sudden John sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first heaven are done away. 
and in this new creation, there is no more temple because God Himself is dwelling, except really the whole creation is like the temple because the New Jerusalem is a cube, just like the Holy of Holies. And there's this river of life with the tree of life. And it's just this stunningly beautiful picture of how God has renewed this garden city where Eden is now this city that is perfected and the Lamb is reigning. And God has brought about salvation for His people and this everlasting new creation. Right? And so friends, again, is following Christ worth it? Well, even in the darkest hour, what this teaches us is that all of these things are playing out according to this scroll. God has a plan. Even in the darkest hour, God is every bit as sovereign. Even in the the worst of suffering, the train tracks of history are pointed every bit as assuredly for the new creation. It is worth it to persevere in following Christ. God holds history itself in His hand. Now, a second thing to notice in this chapter. Jesus is the key who unlocks that history. Picking up in in verse 2. Notice that John says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who can actually bring this plan of God to pass? And John says, But no one was worthy. No human being, no Old Testament saint like Adam or Noah or Abraham or Moses or David. Not even the angels in heaven, not even these four living creatures in all their majesty and splendor, not even they are worthy to take the scroll and bring the plan to pass. And John sees this and he begins to weep, overcome with sorrow at the thought that maybe God's purpose is somehow going to be thwarted, that God's plan for salvation will not come to fruition. And then while he is weeping, in verse 5, one of the elders says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Don't weep, because there is this one who is uniquely qualified. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10 promised a coming lion from the tribe of Judah. And then descended from Judah was David. And as we saw in the Scripture reading in Isaiah 11, right, there was a promise that coming from the root of Jesse, David's father, there would be this coming Messiah. And so the elders saying, look, there is one descended from Judah, descended from David, and he has conquered. He has triumphed. And so John hears about this conquering lion and he turns and looks. And verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He turns to look at this conquering lion. But it's not a lion, it's a lamb. And it's a lamb standing as though it had been slain. In other words, it had its throat cut. It's a sacrificial lamb. But it is standing. And you see that this lamb has conquered in the most surprising of ways. This is the lamb that John the Baptist said, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is the true seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15, who, through bruising his own heel, would crush the head of the serpent. This lamb is Jesus Christ, who has come, and in the weakness of sinful flesh, has conquered through death and then resurrection. And what we see is that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the center and the key of history. The scroll is going to be, he's now worthy to take the scroll because of his death and resurrection. Now history can unfold. And so this lamb, John says, he, he sees him among the elders and he comes forward and he has seven horns representing fullness of authority. Right? This is the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. And he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this is the one who has the fullness of the Spirit, who then can pour out and send forth the Spirit into all the earth. And verse 7, And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The Lamb takes the scroll from the hand of God Himself. And now this lamb has the scroll and he's able to open it. And the point is, the war has been won. The scroll is in the hand of the lamb and it will necessarily be opened in all the things that God has decreed. Judgment, salvation, new creation, it will happen necessarily. And so, friends, the point is that Jesus has already secured salvation. Right In following Jesus, persevere in that because He cannot lose and He will not lose you. Now the third thing I want you to see in this chapter is the deity of the Lamb. So right after the Lamb comes forward and He takes the scroll, look at what happens in verse 8. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Now just think about, this is in the throne room of God in heaven where you have these elders and these living creatures and the heavenly host worshiping God the Father on the throne. The Lamb comes and takes the scroll and all of heaven turns from God, and falls down in worship of the Lamb. I mean, this is either the worst blasphemous, worst idolatry and blasphemy that has ever taken place, or the Lamb is God equal with the Father in power and glory. And, and by the way, in chapters 4 and 5, there are these five hymns. Uh, we saw two of them in chapter 4. First, you have the four living creatures praising God as holy. Then you have the four living creatures and the, or, sorry, then you have the 24 elders praising God as creator. Now, in chapter 5, when the Lamb takes the scroll, first you have the four living creatures and the 24 elders praising the Lamb as Redeemer. And then in verse 11, picking up, after this, suddenly there's the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, 
and they begin praising the Lamb as worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, worthy of all the same things the Father is. And then finally, in verse 13, you have every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them praising the Lamb and the Father as worthy of all glory. And so you notice that in each of the five um, in each of the five hymns, the size of the choir grows. And you have the first two praising the Father, the next two praising the Lamb, and the fifth one praising both together. And we see so clearly the deity of Jesus. And we also see, look in verse 9, and they sang a new song. What the Lamb has done inspires a new song. The heavenly host that for millennia has been praising God as Creator. The same song. And now the Lamb comes and it's like the key changes. (laughs) And the, the words change and they begin praising the Lamb as Redeemer. And all of heaven looks at what Jesus has done. And how God has revealed the riches of His grace in coming to suffer and die and have His own blood poured out to redeem His rebellious creatures. And all heaven is moved in absolute worship at this display of the glorious grace of God. And they begin worshiping the Lamb. And friends, how much more should we who are actually the recipients of that grace. To see Jesus, He died on the cross for our sins. And if heaven is this moved by what Christ has done, how much more should we be moved in absolute worship at this Lamb who has suffered and died to save us from hell and what our sins deserve and to purchase for us everlasting life with God. Oh, how that should fill our hearts, right? We've been asking the question, is it really worth it? And how this just changes. It's, you know, how much, we should be like the apostles. Remember when, you know, they were preaching about Jesus and they were beaten for it? And instead of saying, oh, is it really worth it to preach about Jesus? They leave after being beaten and it says, and they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Right? It is so worth it. We should count it a privilege to be able to suffer for this Lamb who has suffered so much infinitely more for us. Now, there's a final thing that I want to point out. And, and that is, notice that Jesus has, redeemed, has ransomed people for Himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Verses 9 and 10. Worthy are you to take take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You know, as uh, Isaiah 49.6 declares, um, it is too small a thing with God that His Christ would come merely to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. 
No, this Savior will come for a light to the nations that His salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. Or as Isaiah 11 said, right? So there will be this highway from Assyria right, to Jerusalem so that all the nations can flow in. Um, God's plan has always been to redeem a people for Himself from all nations. And notice that it says, and Jesus, by redeeming them, He has made them a kingdom and priests to God. That is the same language God used back in Exodus 19 after He redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And He says, I will be, you will be my people, I will be your God, you are a, you know, my own treasured possession, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now, we see that God is fulfilling that purpose, not merely with Israel, but with the new and true Israel, the church. Right? How Jesus has come, and there's a reason there need to be 12 apostles, just like the 12 tribes. Because He is reconstituting the nation of Israel. But this is not just for ethnic Israel. This is a nation into which Gentiles, like us, can be grafted in. And we can be fellow participants, full sharers in that grace. In Christ, we are grafted in. And this salvation is for all peoples. And what this tells us Right? As we think about, okay, is following Christ worth it? It is so worth it because of who God is, because He reigns. It is worth it because God's the Creator and He, just, he owns our lives. It's worth it to, to see the beauty of God. It's worth it because God is sovereign and we know what end is coming. And it is worth it because of the unspeakable grace of God in Christ that He has given His own Son for us and He is so worthy and it is so worth it that you and I have a mission to go out and tell other people about how worth it it is and to call them to come and join us in this heavenly choir in praising the Lamb. And so as we conclude, let's just be reminded there is this heavenly choir that we are summoned to join in ourselves in just worshiping Jesus and we are called to go out and proclaim to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on earth and bid them to come. And join us in that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian and you have been asking that question, is it really worth it? Friend, I hope you see how worth it it is. And I hope you see that the grace of God in Christ is wholly sufficient for you. There's nothing you need to do to add to that, to earn it. It is a gift that if you will simply turn from sin and trust in Jesus, all your sin will be forgiven and you can join this choir, and you can join this choir for all eternity because Christ has paid it all on the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how good it is to be reminded of who you are and of what you have done in Christ, that our salvation is secure, that you have loved us, and that even in the sufferings and trials we face, that you are sovereign and that you are working all these things together to lead to such a glorious resolution when every sin will be judged, but when we who trust in Christ will be saved and we will live with you in that new creation forever. Oh God, how worthy you are of all worship and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us as we sing Holy, Holy, Holy.